Hello and welcome to episode number 14 of Earth Repair Radio. People I've been dealing with still don't have their power, that's five months. Some of the places that did have solar panels, they just took down their solar panels before the hurricane and then put them back up as soon as the hurricane was done. In the event of things like a hurricane, it's good to know what's out there that's edible that you can actually go out and forage for. So by teaching people to read their landscapes and teaching people to design their landscapes so that they can harvest these storms and hold the water that's produced during these storms um, is really important all across the Caribbean right now. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today we're going to be talking to a guest from the Caribbean island of Trinidad, Earl Rahman Naronha. Earl is the founder of Wasamaki Ecosystems. Uh, he's got a 33-acre permaculture farm on Trinidad, and he does uh, design, installation, consultation, and educational work throughout the Caribbean and beyond. Um, Earl has a lot of connections to the land and people, and we're going to talk today about the impacts of superstorms and hurricanes and some of the permaculture design strategies that can be uh, implemented and practiced to create superstorm resilience. So, without further ado, let's talk to Earl. All right. Uh, good morning, Earl, or I guess good afternoon in Trinidad. Afternoon. How's the weather over there? Oh, the, the weather's great. Um, it's nice and warm. Um, the weather's a little bit crazy in that we're still getting rain when it's supposed to be the dry season. But, um, yeah, that's kind of been happening for the last couple of years where things are quite erratic. So right now we're getting rain, which I'm glad for, because normally this time of the year we start dealing with fires. So, yeah, everything's good so far. Great, great. Well, I was really inspired. Um, I went to your talk at the International Permaculture Conference in Hyderabad, India, in uh, that would have been late November of 2017. And I've just returned from India. And finally, uh, I'm having a chance to sit down and talk to you about the really fascinating um, and inspiring work you're doing down there <clears throat> in the Caribbean. And specifically, I want to talk today about uh, hurricanes, superstorms, and some of the major uh, weather events um, that are normal for your uh, region, but also have seemed to be increasing in intensity in uh, tropical, subtropical zones worldwide. So I want to start by, uh, if you could just describe the threat posed by hurricanes, right? What's the magnitude of damage that you've witnessed um, that have been caused by some of these recent superstorms, like this last summer, the summer of 2017, when we had more hurricanes than I could count, I think, sweeping devastatingly through the Caribbean and uh, Florida, et cetera, and uh, the, the Gulf Coast of the U.S.? Yeah. Right, so... Um where, where I live in Trinidad, we're about south of the hurricane zone, so we don't get as much problems as some of the islands north of us. Um, this year in particular, the islands that got hit the hardest were probably Dominica, um, U.S. Virgin Islands, the British Virgin Islands, and then Puerto Rico. Um, the magnitude of these storms was something that I don't think anyone was expecting. Like the storm that hit Dominica had 
sustained winds of over 220 miles an hour, which is crazy. And the storm actually went from a category one to category five in about 12 to 16 hours. So people on the ground were expecting a one or two or three storm and they got hit by a five without any warning. So things like that is what we're worried about. And the damage was immense, like the whole island of Dominica was pretty much destroyed. Um, Yeah, all the trees pretty much got knocked down. It turned from a green island to a gray island. And I was even talking to some of the search and rescue people that went in there from the Barbados Defense Force. And they said the first thing that they remember when they got to Dominica was just the smell. Like it was just the smell of death everywhere Mm. from all the animals that got killed as well as some of the people. So it's something that scared a lot of people because um, I've been talking to some of the search and rescue people throughout the islands and it's uh, something that they've never seen on the scale before so that they're almost not trained for something like that and they think that now they have to start upping their training to respond to these type of storms that they expect to see in the future. It's been quite crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So um, from the people that you've talked to and your students, I understand that, you know, Trinidad, of course, did not get hit by a a major hurricane. You haven't experienced that yourself. But how are people surviving during an actual event uh, of this magnitude? Like what types of structures that were in place aided people's survival? Right. I think, um, well, my main information comes from Dominica, which probably got the hardest hit of all the islands this year. And that was from some of my friends that happened to be having a vacation there, as well as some of my students that have farms there. And really, um, like I said, the, the hurricane went from a one to a five so quickly that a lot of people on the ground did not even get warnings that there was a category five hurricane coming. They just thought it was like a one or a two. So when it actually hit them, a lot of them were not as prepared as they could have been um, just because some of the areas don't have as good communication um, and internet and stuff like that goes down quickly. Um, But really, all the people I talk to that live in well-constructed houses, almost all of them had their roofs taken off. Um, People were hiding under beds. One family that I know was like a lady and her two children that were two and three years old they ended up being in a cupboard that fell over them and their husband was on top of the cupboard just holding it down (laughs) and he weathered the whole storms kind of holding on to the top of the cupboard and it was um yeah it was crazy like that and um when the storm was over um when people came out like all the trees had lost all their leaves but all the trees had also lost a lot of their bark so that a lot of the trees didn't even have a chance of coming back so it was just the strength and the immensity of the storm that was uh, pretty much devastating Um, some people sheltered in concrete houses that had concrete roofs and those structures did a lot better but a lot of people that just have galvanized metal roofs those roofs all were taken off and even some of the wealthy people just have those type of roofs like you don't normally see concrete roofs built in the Caribbean so it's something to look at in the future as well as designing houses that might be round instead of square so that they can't build up as much pressure 
as some of the just the conventional houses. Yeah, I remember a uh, talk when I went to Cuba for the International Permaculture Conference there in 2013. There was a talk about uh, how they had survived because, you know, of course, Cuba is very prone to hurricanes as well. And they were talking about having roofs that came all the way down to the ground where they tied the roofs basically into the ground um, so the wind couldn't get up underneath them and, and push them off. Um, so I'm sure there's all kinds of interesting architectural designs that would be resilient, like you mentioned, roundhouses. Um, now that it's about five months or so after the fact, um, do you have any indication now about how, you know, what percentage of trees are actually coming back from that? And, you know, how much are have died and how much just got knocked way back in their uh, growth? Well, um, percentage-wise, I'm not sure. I have been talking to people, and what they're finding is that um, the whole island and the whole ecosystem is kind of going through what we would call almost a permaculture um, succession. Mm-hmm. So that a lot of the older, mature trees have just died. And right now, there's a lot of vines coming up everywhere. There's just a lot of weeds coming up everywhere. People are seeing a lot of butterflies because um, they think a lot of the predatory birds are gone. Like, a lot of them died during the storm. Um, So that there's all these pulses that are happening now of nature trying to fix itself. And it's it's going through, like, almost a traditional... um, system that we always teach in permaculture where you have the weeds coming up first and then you have the shrubs and then you have the vines and then you have the trees eventually. So a lot of the bigger trees seem to have died out. Um, Some of them are now sending up new leaves and trees and um, branches and stuff like that. And from what I understand, the island's turning green again, but it's almost a different system than what existed um, six months ago. And it'll it'll probably go through that progression until it reaches something stable again. But from reading and talking to people, that could take another 30 to 50 years. Yeah. So there's all kinds of things that are happening now that people just have to adapt to really quickly. Yeah, so it's this really intense disturbance event that just knocked succession all the way back to the early stages. Which could actually be a really interesting... I mean, it's an interesting design situation you know looking at it from an objective perspective um so as a designer who lives on the islands and who's seeing these storms and you know you were just before we started recording you're talking about you know your travel schedule and you're you're working all over the place um what design elements or strategies would you include at this point onto a site to mitigate the effects of some of these really powerful tropical storms? Well, I, I think um, from just talking to people, um, having a polyculture type garden surrounding their houses is really important because um, even though the hurricane took down a lot of what people were growing, there were still a lot of crops that people could harvest from immediately. So what people told me is that just before the hurricane came, a lot of people tried to harvest whatever was available just to bring inside. 
and then after the hurricane passed, um, a lot of the root crops were still in the ground that people were able to dig up for the first week or two. And by then, a lot of the wild plants surrounding the area started sending up shoots and leaves and things like that. And by just having knowledge of what's edible in your landscape, um, people were able to kind of survive on the little things that were coming up. But if you don't have that knowledge beforehand, then you're just surrounded by stuff that you don't understand what's poisonous and what's not edible and what's edible. So that, again, understanding what's surrounding you and what's in your um, environment is really important. Um, having power sources that are decentralized is really important as well, because that's one of the things that we've been helping some of the people in Dominica with is sending up generators because most of the islands are on a grid system with maybe just one power station feeding everything. So that some of the places that did have solar panels, they just took down their solar panels before the hurricane and then put them back up as soon as the hurricane was done. And those kind of systems really help people when there's no other sources of power because um, even simple things like just charging your cell phone and keeping in contact with emergency crews things like that are really important. And that's where these very small power sources can help connect people um, while the bigger power sources are being reconnected, which in some places is still not done. So I, I know in Dominica, the people I've been dealing with still don't have their power. That's five months. And I know in Puerto Rico, from talking to people over there, um, a lot of the island still doesn't have power. And that's kind of amazing when you think of um, the technology that we have today that should be able to get things back to people as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's interesting the uh, the story about people taking their solar panels down before the storm hit. That was another um, point from the presentation I saw in Cuba um, was about retractable infrastructure. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, energy systems, wind systems, solar systems, trellising, um, any other kind of high-value item that can be easily uh, put up and taken down, especially because in the modern... Well, you said that the warning... Would they have taken their solar system down even if it was just a Category 1 storm, do you think? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, some... Some people actually took them down, um, I think, from some of the previous hurricanes that were going through because, and they just never got back to putting some of them up because a lot of the hurricanes almost happened within a six-week period so that it was like one hurricane after another that was threatening different islands. And even though a lot of the islands may not have had the eye of the hurricane pass over them, um, even where I was at that point in Barbados, we were still getting a lot of rain and a lot of wind from just the outer banks of the hurricane. So that for that whole six week to two month period, I think most of the Caribbean islands were thinking of what they should be doing. And if they were taking things down, they weren't putting them back up because there were more storms coming. Because at one point there were almost four hurricanes running at the same time. All across the um, Atlantic, it was it was it was crazy that way. Yeah. 
so yeah, some some people took down their um, solar panels and some people didn't. But it seemed that these solar panels, maybe just because how they're designed or how they were built, managed to actually weather the hurricanes okay that the people that did leave some of them up that weren't on their roofs, because the roofs actually went, um, the, the panels seem to have survived. But I do know that most of the people took down their panels, and I think that's just something standard that people are doing now once there's any kind of warning that there's a hurricane coming. Hmm. Now, are you aware of any plants that really seem to have bounced back? I mean, I, I saw some pictures from when, you know, what, the hurricane, I remember which one that hit Florida and someone had a picture of like a clump of bananas that seemed to bounce right back within a few weeks. Um, also in permaculture designers manual, when you look at some of Bill Mollison's designs for hurricane resilience, he's got big bamboo stands that are on little hills surrounding the house because bamboo is so flexible. Have you seen any evidence that there are, uh, plant types that seem to be able to bounce right back from these events? Um, we we were talking to people about that. Um, I don't think anyone really took up the design process surrounding their house as well as they should have because we've been talking about planting bamboo around people's houses where there are risks of hurricanes for a while, but I don't think anyone took that up. And one of the other reasons that people didn't take that up was um, a lot of Caribbean islands do have problems with fires and surrounding your house with bamboo sometimes just makes it a risk for if there's a fire in the area that the bamboo catches fire very quickly. Um, Again, what we've asked people to document is which of the trees... Um, survived better than the other ones, like depending on what species, because some of them are more pliable than the other ones. Um, But really, I haven't got much of a response from a lot of the people out there just because a lot of them are just trying to get through day-to-day living still. So that um, I've been asking people for information, but I think um, everyone is still in that mindset of just trying to rebuild right now that they're not taking the time to note stuff down and send it to me. They're probably noting it down in their head, but they're just not getting it to me. So at some point, I would like to go to Dominica and help my friends. But right now, I don't think they're even ready to have people come and help them just because it adds another layer of responsibility onto some of the things that they're trying to fix. Yeah, yeah. They're just still trying to basically deal with the basic survival and infrastructure stability after the event. Yeah, a lot of them are still rebuilding their houses. Um, Some of the aid stuff that we've sent is seeds because a lot of them are trying to replant their farms and having access to seeds sometimes is something that doesn't happen that quickly. Um, So that's, yeah, getting generators out there and getting seeds out there is really important so that people can start planting stuff. Um, because right now in the Caribbean, you're kind of transitioning into the dry season when you traditionally don't plant that much stuff. So, um, again, it's kind of at that point where if you don't get your stuff into the ground very soon, you're not going to have enough water to get through to the rainy season again, which would start in June or July. Right. So it sounds like there was really intense wind effects. Um, Are you aware of the you know, flooding, both inland flooding as well as storm surge effects that have happened from these events? 
Um, I've seen pictures of, so yes, there was a lot of wind. Um, and the wind caused a tremendous amount of destruction among the trees and among the houses. Um, there also was a lot of rain, and certain areas had a lot of rain fall in a very short time, and certain areas had large landslides, so that one of the other issues that they're dealing with is all their topsoil is now covered under feet of gravel and rocks that have come down in landslides. So then, again, you have to start trying to figure out how to just rebuild the soil in those areas that are covered so that all that topsoil that was there is either washed away or is buried. Um, yeah, so that was flooding in some of the, I guess, some of the watersheds. In, in the Caribbean, there are no huge watersheds just because most of the islands are small so that it's more that you get flash floods that last a couple of hours and then are gone. Um, it's not like in the Amazon or in India where there's such a huge watershed that you have floods flooding the area for months on it, on time. Like um, in most of the Caribbean, you'll, you'll get a flash flood, but within a couple of hours, it's gone. So it's just dealing with that. Um, sometimes places are badly planned in that there's people that put up structures all along rivers. And in those cases, a lot of those are the less wealthy people that are almost squatting sometimes along the rivers, and then they get all their houses washed out. Um, so those are some of the things that I have seen and people have told me about, that there was quite a bit of flooding and there was a lot of rain, um, a lot of wind. Um, along the coast, I'm not too sure. Um, I know that the wind came from directions that it normally does not, so that normally the Caribbean side of most of the islands tends to have um, not very large waves and it tends to be a lot calmer and that's normally where people will store all their boats versus the Atlantic side which is always being um, affected by the northeasterly trade winds. So when hurricanes hit, they tend to swirl and you get the wind coming from a different direction so that a lot of the west-facing west facing sides of the island were badly hit, that were not prepared for the effects of big waves and a lot of wind. So yeah, when you're dealing with a hurricane, you're never sure which direction it's going to come from. But traditionally, the winds normally come into the Caribbean from the northeast. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, especially from the permaculture perspective, to make your sector diagram where you're mapping yeah. the direction of prevailing winds or direction of destructive storms. It's actually really interesting that hurricanes, because of their sort of swirling nature, you can't necessarily pick a prevailing hurricane direction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what we teach people in our PDCs, that when you're dealing with a hurricane, um, you're never sure which direction the wind's going to come from. So um, it's, yeah, sometimes you can't do a sector analysis for something like that. You just have to kind of prepare your site to be hit from any direction. And if it is coming from any direction, what can you do about that? And just kind of have that in the back of your mind when you're designing your site. And what types of strategies would you teach in your PDC about dealing with uh, the potential deluge and, and 
flash flood level rain events that can move through those types of landscapes? Well, um, from the flash flood point of view, um, it's something that's done all across the world is that you normally would look for the 100 year high mark for flooding. Um, and that's sometimes there's no information available um, that you can actually go and research. So you just have to start talking to some of the elders in the communities and ask them in their living history, how high has the river ever come? Things like that, so that you're getting that kind of information to then put out um, to help you design. Um, when there's so much rain falling, again, it's difficult to design around that. Like if you have swales or you have um, your land planted on contour, that can help divert some of the water from coming straight down a slope and help spread it across the slope. Um, but really, yeah, it's it's important to have a tree-covered slope because, especially in Dominica, a lot of the places where conventional farming had gone on and they'd stripped a lot of the tree cover off the land, um, those areas had much larger landslides than areas that were still forested in certain ways. So by including tree crops um, maybe on the borders of your fields or breaking up your fields into certain sections so that you maintain some kind of root stability. Um, by breaking up your farmland into smaller portions and surrounding it with trees is sometimes a good way of doing it because in the tropics most of the fertility is actually held within the vegetation and not within the soil so that by having trees that are picking up all the nutrients that are leaching out of your fields you can always recycle that material back into the back into the site by doing things like chop and drop. So, um, you know, talking about forested slopes, you're starting to get into a little bit of, of larger scale strategies. Um, if you were going to uh, consult with the government of Dominica or Trinidad or some other uh, storm-prone island, what types of large-scale strategies would you recommend at the regional level for superstorm resilience, right? So that's something we're we're still thinking about because, like I said, um, these superstorms have just started coming around. Um, we are working on a project in Mastique, which is a small island, but we're really looking at the water um, on the whole island and what happens when there are storms. The island is only four miles by two miles um, so that we can actually look at the whole island. And part of what we're doing, because um, the island has large villas and lots of roads, um, is to look at the points where all this water accumulates and then finding out how to spread it. So um, because most of the times when engineers design sites, they just look at trying to get the water out of the site as quickly as possible. And sometimes they just bring all the water to one point and then try and get it to the sea as quickly as possible. But we're looking at trying to intercept the water before it gets to all these points where it then causes damage by trying to spread it out into the landscape um, as close to where it's being collected. So that's one strategy that we're trying to get out there is to spread the water as high up in the watersheds as possible so that... Um, there is less making it down to the bottom of the watershed 
initially when there is a huge storm. Um, sometimes the storms are so big that they overwhelm everything. But again, it's trying to put your best thinking forward and trying to design for that. Um, also, just having a lot of the slopes planted in trees or having tree lines in certain areas across slopes really helps to slow down water moving through areas. And um, just teaching farmers about keeping their soils as covered as possible so that just simply having areas where water can percolate into the ground is really important. And a lot of conventional farmers nowadays are just plowing up their land using technology that is not designed for the tropical areas and for the Caribbean. And it's trying to go back in there and trying to change them, which is not that easy because also a lot of the um, extension officers that work with a lot of the ministries in the agricultural sector tend to go to either North America or Europe to get their training and then they come back with the information that is not relevant to the Caribbean and then they push it out to all the farmers down here. So it's it's a long process that we're going to have to go through to teach people, but I think that these events that have happened in the last year have forced people to rapidly look at what is out there that could change quickly, that could kind of help them weather the storm a little better. I hope that helps. <laughs> yeah, because I, I mean, I, I suspect that uh, people like you uh, will get a knock on your door one day from uh, people's at, at higher levels of government you know, saying, hey, what do we do, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's starting to happen because there are aid agencies out there that normally are almost first responders to a lot of these type of um, events. But they are seeing that after the first response, there is almost a second longer-term response where you start designing things into the site that can help deal with issues if they show up again on the scale that they've shown up. So, yes, we have had people contact us, but right now on most of the islands that have been hit really bad, they're still just dealing with getting themselves back up and standing. Um, but I think probably within the next couple of months, um, we will get people coming to ask us questions. And some of the work that we're doing on some of these smaller smaller islands is probably going to be stuff that we can replicate on a larger scale on some of the bigger islands. Yeah, like this one project you were just mentioning where it was, uh, you know, four miles by two miles, this island. is. Are, are you guys really designing for um, the entire island? Or, you know, you said it was a private island or just a portion of it? Well, the, the whole island is private. Um, it's run by one company. It's called the Mustique Company. Um, and it's basically, I think, 90 villas that are there that are owned by the rich and famous from all over the world. Um, but there are people over there that are seeing what's happening. Um, there are people that still believe in climate change. And um, they're trying to make their, their island as re resilient as possible. But they're also trying to cut down on some of their footprints of what they're doing. So... Yeah, we are working with the Mustique Company, which runs all the villas on that island. And um, we are, like I said, we are setting up their compost system. We are looking at where we can intercept water and spread it across the island. 
because there are certain areas where beaches are being washed out, where they have flooding every time it rains now because of the buildings that are built further up in the watershed are um, just sending down water really quick so that, um, again, so that's what we're working on right now, putting in some large swales in some of the forested areas to try and sink the water, as well as um, trying to get as much mulch onto the ground in certain areas because they have a huge wood chipper that they produce endless amounts of mulch with so that we're just teaching them where is the good interception points to be putting them out so that um, they can get the most benefit from it. So, um, And then we're looking at all different types of things, how to grow more food on the island, how to help the staff that are working on the island grow more food for themselves because sometimes they're the people that need the permaculture more than the villa owners that are quite wealthy anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. That sounds like a, a neat little microcosm if you can uh, stabilize the slopes and soils of an island like that and make that, uh, you know, make it resilient to storms on that scale. That could definitely be something that um, could be uh, expanded and used as a teaching tool. Now, um, you talked a little bit about beaches eroding. Are coastal forests like mangroves, I mean, is that part of um, some of the tools in your toolbox strategies you use? Um, I've never planted mangroves um, just because we've never got a project like that. Um, Traditionally, within the Caribbean, a lot of the mangroves have been removed um, basically for either industry or hotels. Um, But over the last probably two or three years, the value of mangroves has been pushed, especially within a lot of the agencies that do aid, so that now when Caribbean islands are applying for funding for certain things, um, climate change adaptation um, is one of the things that's always highlighted, and putting back mangroves is one of those things that needs to be done. There are certain projects across the Caribbean where they're now looking at planting back mangroves, um, and that's probably something that I would try and get into, but for now, I don't have any personal experience with it, but I do know that that is being looked at in certain areas where the mangroves have been removed um, or where they've simply just died out because of pollution from further inland. Yeah, it seems like... Uh, those coastal forests could be a real important buffer to storm surge um, and the erosion of coastal areas from, you know, when the ocean rises with big storms coming in. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Like, we've seen lots of models out there where people show the the effects of having that kind of coastal protection. Um, The project that I'm working on in Barbados, we have a whole sand dune system that has um, forest on it. That's probably the biggest forest dune system in Barbados that we're conserving. And again, that really does show how some of these forest systems along the, the coastline can actually cause a lot of benefits further inland. Um, and again, it protects against storm surges. It protects against some of the wind that comes in. Um, it's very useful. And a lot of those trees are adapted to take the kind of beating that um, some of these storms put up, that they are the things that spring back the quickest in a system. Now, I've, yeah, I've seen a lot of documentation that 
project. Um, the is that the old quarry that you guys uh, rehabilitated? Yeah, so it's it's still a functioning quarry. It's about 120 acres in size, and it probably has another three years worth of sand still in it. So our what we're doing is um, rehabilitating some of the areas that have been exhausted from from the mining. Um, we're getting good success just following permaculture principles of building soil, going through the progression of starting with um, nitrogen-fixing trees and fast-growing biomass grasses and then building building the soil from there and going towards a food forest. So, yeah, that project is, is going well. Um, it's three years into um, the implementation of it, and it probably has another three to five years before... It'll actually be completed. And if anyone ever wants to visit the website, it's walkersreserve.com. Yeah, it seems like rehabilitating or or, uh, working on a a sand quarry and the ecological succession that you are um, stimulating there with your plantings and water harvesting, it seems like that actually might be similar to what's going to have to happen in a place like Dominique or someplace where the vegetation has just been wiped out by strong winds. Do you think there's any merit to people uh, following some of your processes on that, on the uh, Walker's Reserve project? Yeah, I I think um, all across the Caribbean, um, people should follow some of the procedures that we're putting in place because if you take a a mined out sand mine, um, there's really not much there that you have to play with. And um, again, Um, A lot of what we're doing is just putting in water harvesting um, ponds, putting in swales, um, moving water across the landscape as slowly as possible so it actually sinks into the ground, and then slowly building up soil that will then um, harvest um, or will then grow a lot of the fruit trees and shelter trees and a lot of the other trees that need to grow in those areas. Um, so a lot of what we're doing is very relevant to climate change um, resiliency. Um, and again, all across the islands, um, all the islands import a lot of their food where traditionally they used to grow a lot of their food. So that is something that we're trying to stimulate to happen again. Um, any kind of perturbation in the shipping can influence a lot of the islands. Some islands only have like two or three weeks supply of food before they'd run out if the ships don't come in with the food that they need. So um, a lot of what we do at the quarry is about teaching people to grow food, teaching people to harvest water, teaching people to build back their soils, teaching people to stabilize slopes. All of these things are really important in dealing with any kind of storm that's going to hit them or dealing with the aftermath of any kind of these things. As well as with climate change, we're noticing that um, you get big storms, but you also get very dry, dry periods now, where traditionally we used to get rainfall um, happening even during the dry season. Now you're seeing areas where it's not raining at all, or you get a big storm and then you get a month of no rain, and then you get another big storm as well. So by teaching people to read their landscapes and teaching people to design their landscapes so that they can harvest these storms, and hold the water that's produced during these storms um, is really important all across the Caribbean right now. 
Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the whole, the fact that if you're going to do, say, bamboo in proximity to your home or other trees or like bamboo is a large grass to try to um, break the wind and stabilize the terrain right around your house, you're also bringing potentially um, fire volatile, fire-prone vegetation right close to your house as well. It's kind of like a double-edged sword a little bit. Um, yeah, so th- those types of design challenges for the wet and dry tropics, I'm sure there's lots of them. Yeah, the, it's it's very challenging because even on my site here in Trinidad, um, during the rainy season, uh, my, my whole farm is on clay. So during the rainy season, it gets very wet, and then during the dry season, the clay dries out very quickly and then it gets very dry. And just having those two extremes, um, sometimes trees that are three or four years old will suddenly just die because either the soil's too wet for them to grow in or during the dry season, it gets too dry for them to um, survive. And again, yeah, we deal with the issues of fires. I'm I'm especially in a fire-prone area in Trinidad. So um, during the rainy season, we have to deal with a lot of water, but during the dry season, we have to deal with a lot of fires. Um, and every year for the last 20 years that I've had my farm, we've had fires um, coming and destroying things. So I've actually had a, a time when um, one of my workers has been killed in a fire here on this farm so that we're very careful with fires. And um, like I said, when you're going into permaculture and you're dealing with tree crops, um, you're looking at stuff from the long term so that a fire can sometimes take away 10 or 15 years of your work in a couple of hours. Right. And what are some of your major recommendations, uh, design features for um, mitigating the risk of fire in your in your area? Um, we've put in a lot of different features. Um, we've Over the last 20 years, we've probably put in close to 20 ponds on my farm so that we have a lot of water stored in the landscape. Um, we've noted which trees can deal with fires. So there's certain trees that are called fire climax trees like teak. Um, So in certain areas where um, what I would call my zone five, which is far from my house, that uh, areas that you can't keep an eye on that often where fires normally will go across, um, we've planted teak um, so that the teak handles the fire quite well. Even if it kills a young tree, the tree comes back from the root. Um, and once the trees reach a certain age, they are not um, killed by fire. Mm. Um, so in certain areas, we're designing crops that will grow with the fires. Certain areas, we just have to put in very large fire traces um, so that we have all these fire breaks. Um, all my roadways within my farm become fire fire breaks during the dry season. Um, again, we have to keep down the grass within certain areas. Um, I have a couple of donkeys that are just pets, and we rotate them through the farm to keep down certain areas where the tractor can't get in to brush cut. So we're designing all of that, and then during the dry season, there's somebody on the site 24 hours a day, just in case the fire breaks out anywhere, and then we have protocols that we follow so that we get help from other people to come and fight them. Now, is there a lot of topography on your site as far as being able to move water from one area to another during a fire, or is it relatively flat? Um, There is, I would term my farm as undulating, so that there's three little watersheds within my farm. 
So yeah, there is quite a lot of up and down. What we've done is we've kind of dug ponds into the rivers themselves where um, along my boundaries so that we have water close to where we might need it if we do have a fire that's approaching us. Um, my irrigation system um, that we use that has sprinklers on it, um, we turn on at certain times. Um, because part of our income on our site is cut flowers, so we have about three acres of flowers that we grow that as soon as there's a fire approaching, we turn on all these sprinklers, so at least that area has some form of protection, even if we lose the rest of the farm. So there's things like that. It is difficult moving water around. Sometimes you just have to physically beat the fire out with um, fire beaters or branches, or um, you just have to wait until the fire reaches one of your fire breaks and then it runs out of fuel and then you beat it out. But once the fire is going at full speed, it's very difficult getting even within 30 or 40 feet of it. So we just have to leave certain areas to to burn if we can't catch it in time and then just retreat to the nearest fire break. Yeah, yeah it's, really, it's really interesting, the dual design of needing to prepare for events like catastrophic wildfire as well as uh really large scale rain events and wind events so pretty uh challenging environment you've got there (laughs) yeah it's it's never boring believe me (laughs) yeah so um the last thing i wanted to talk about was some of the recovery strategies after um this is one of the things that you really hit on in your presentation was things that you're recommending in the aftermath of a big hurricane, superstorm, cyclone, typhoon, um, what types of things can people do to quickly recover so they can get back on their feet and don't? Ha- I just saw an article in the newspaper yesterday talking about the the three thousand Puerto Ricans still in hotels in like Miami or Southern Florida. Um, you know, it seems like one result of having these devastating storms go through is that people just have to leave because they just can't survive there and they have to relocate and sometimes these people never get back to where they're going um saw a lot of that in in you know just spent all this time in india and the went went in the slums of mumbai and there's all these people and i I just was like these people look like dislocated villagers you know you see a lot of people that they just look like they got uprooted from their uh, land base by some sort of event. So it seems like that's a big risk um, with hurricanes and superstorms. Um, what sort of recovery strategies are you recommending? Well, um, it is difficult, and I, I agree. Like a lot of my friends that were in some of these hurricane areas did leave. Um, I know some of the other people like I did teach a PDC in Puerto Rico and um, the people that started up the Puerto Rico um, Permaculture Institute over there they have been instrumental in teaching a lot of resiliency out there so that um, I don't think they ever thought they'd be hit by a hurricane as bad as they were I think they were preparing for other types of catastrophes and the hurricane hit them so in a way they took that training and used it um but yeah when as soon as a hurricane goes through like some of the things that we've found is um like in the immediate aftermath it's just about collecting as much 
downed stuff as possible and storing it. So sometimes if all your fruit has been knocked off the trees, it's just to go out there and collect them. I know people that were living on coconuts for the first three or four days after the, the hurricane um, because coconuts have clean water in them, they have clean drinking water in them, they have the meat in them that you can actually survive on that for a little while. And then knowing where your root crops are and digging them up. Um, having did, did the coconut stuff. trees survive, just out of curiosity? No, actually a lot of the coconut trees got blown down as well. Okay. Um, so people were just going and collecting the nuts everywhere and um, using that for the first couple of days because even aid took a week before it actually started trickling in in some places. So it was really trying to figure all that out. Um, people don't think about the wildlife, but in Dominica, people were talking to me about hummingbirds just falling out of the sky after two days because there were no flowers around for them to feed on. Um, the birds and a lot of the wildlife was also looking for food at that point so that some of my friends were actually putting out a little bit of their food for the wildlife as well. So it's something to think about that a lot of people don't think about, especially on islands is how can you also help the wildlife? Um, there's a lot of the root crops that have to be harvested. Um, and then just like, again, learning to figure out what is edible in your landscape because there's certain things that you might not eat on a regular basis because you have other stuff that might be more tasty. But in the event of things like a hurricane, it's good to know what's out there that's edible that you can actually go out and forage for um, because sometimes a lot of the little leaves and shoots that come up quickly are the stuff that you can live on for a little while. And then um, having seeds and saving seeds and then sourcing seeds is really important to get yourself up and running again because sometimes, especially on these small islands, there are no seed banks um, Sometimes the, if there are seed banks, they could get destroyed as well. So sometimes having people out there that can quickly send in seeds um, is something important to do. Another uh, thing from the presentation I saw in Cuba was the woman said that um, people who had their seeds all stored in plastic containers seemed to do just fine, but people that had their seed banks in glass jars... Um, right. lost a lot because the glass jars fell and smashed. So even just thinking about the, the impact of winds and things blowing over, and if you're going through the wreckage of a of a building or something, that you know, what were you keeping your seeds in? I thought that was really interesting because that hadn't even occurred to me. And one other little example I wanted to throw out there from my own house. I, I'm not sure exactly what catastrophe I'm planning for, but. Um, you know, I, I have a, a whole hedgerow of Jerusalem artichoke, which is a, a root. It's a potato light root that I, I'm not actually particularly fond of eating. Like, I don't harvest it. <laughs> it doesn't do wonderful things on people's digestion. But it increases right. every year. It's a beautiful screen. It has this really – it blooms in, like, October, which is extremely late for a sunflower to be blooming here. And I think of that as my emergency food supply that's just right. getting bigger every year. So it's, it's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's important just to have stuff planted in your landscape that you may not necessarily use during good times, but that you do realize might be edible at some point. Or if you do have a big catastrophe, it's something that you can go to kind of as your reserve. So, yeah, it's it's having that mindset of looking into the future and trying to plan and have your landscape designed in a way that can support you if one of these events hits you. Um, here in Trinidad, like 
honestly, if we got hit by a hurricane, it would be even worse because because we're outside of the typical hurricane zone, people just don't prepare during the hurricane period, even though they have stuff on TV and they have stuff on the radio saying be prepared. Most people just don't take it on. So it's something that we need to start being more aware about and taking more precautions for. Mm-hmm. I guess on the on the larger scale, um, what I've what people have told me in Dominica is in some ways the hurricanes have brought the communities closer together and building that community network is something that's important so that you have a community that will look after different people because in a lot of places communities have broken down that there is very little support between different members within say a watershed Um, but I think in Dominica the hurricane has tended to form closer, tighter knit communities now that uh, having through no planning have basically just had to come together and figure out how they can keep going. So that um, that's something that needs to be strengthened, I think, is just the community response and designing around communities and not just your site but what else within the community should be put in place in case of these type of disasters. Because if you have the perfectly designed shelter and you weather the hurricane, fine. If all if 100 people around you don't have anything, they're all going to come and take what you have. So it's really about looking at the bigger picture. And here in the Caribbean, we, we always talk about watersheds, is that we really should start designing for watersheds and knowing who's in your watershed and knowing how someone at the top of the watershed is affecting someone at the bottom of the watershed. Because the watersheds are not very big that you could almost know the different people between the top of the watershed and the bottom. And having them all realize the connections that exist just during regular rainy seasons and then during storms so that there is an understanding of how people doing stuff in the upper reaches of a watershed can affect people lower down. So designing around that and teaching people the connections is really what needs to be done so that they then can come up with their own solutions so that you're not imposing something on them, but you're teaching them what's the connections between them further up and the people further down and how can they influence it and how can they benefit from that kind of relationship. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that the the topography and the geography and the size of the watershed basins, the catchment areas, makes it a lot more feasible in a way to have a watershed scale um, planning or response to a disaster. I mean, I, for example, live in the Willamette River watershed, which is like this vast area that encompasses uh, a number of um, cities and towns and um, vast foothills and agricultural lands and so you know to have a watershed scale solution here is on the governmental level Um, it sounds a lot like like some of the uh, projects this is in the desert that i visited in rajasthan and india they really had like what you're talking about very human scale watersheds and they actually had watershed wide water harvesting systems that were building Um, the water table within their watershed and they were all benefiting collectively from having the water table um, accessible for irrigation 
you know, they'd have the whole watershed was like eight square miles or something. And, you know, the, the governance within that watershed, it was, it was like there was a village and there were several hamlets and they already had sort of a, a local governance structure. And so um, that's, it's really interesting how when you have smaller watershed divisions of landscape, how it's maybe more conducive to more rapid solutions as opposed to governmental scale solutions um, that we have here where I live. So that's that's a fascinating point there. Great. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So and, um yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, and and it is um like even how you're saying like the watersheds that you're in, like you can break them up into smaller and smaller watersheds until you can reach a level where communities can handle their own watersheds. I understand that you're on a huge watershed and if you're towards the bottom of it um, you have hundreds of communities that might be affecting you but that's the goal that we're really trying to get at is that at some point you want to reach a human scale watershed so that those people in those areas can take care of just their immediate areas and that can influence a lot of what's happening further down in the watershed but it requires a lot of work and that's what our Caribbean-wide plan is, is to have like a permaculture practitioner or teacher in every watershed so that they can become the training ground for other people in that watershed to learn things from. So that's what our plan is, is to put somebody that knows about permaculture in every watershed throughout the Caribbean so that they can influence stuff on a human level, like you say. Nice. It sounds like an excellent plan. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, um, how can people listening find out more about you, about your work, get in touch, hire you, etc.? <laughs> um, we we are on Facebook, so if you type in um, Permaculture Trinidad, um, we show up. Um, we do have a website. It's um, if you type in Trinidad and Permaculture, my website shows up right away. The name of my farm is Wasamaki Ecosystems. It's a Swahili word. Um, I'm originally from Kenya um, a long time ago. Um, so that's another way of getting in touch with me. So as long as you type in Permaculture in Trinidad, um, I should show up. Um, if you want to follow any of our other projects, um, the project in Barbados, the website is Walker's reserve.com w-a-l-k-e-r-s reserve.com um yeah and feel free to send me a message i'm always willing to exchange information with people it's great to connect great and thank you for be will for being willing to talk with me for an hour here i really appreciate you taking the time and your busy schedule and your farm and all the animals i hear in the background sounds like you got a lot going on there so yeah, really appreciate it. Okay, great. So it's great thank, uh, talking with you, Andrew, and hopefully I'll meet up with you somewhere. All right, great, Earl. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take care. Great. Okay. See you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.